Thank you, Kelsey. Dare I say, well done. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Tonight, the, the subject of the message is when there is discord among the brethren. I want to begin by saying I'm not preaching this because we have a problem in our church. As I've talked with pastors through the 30-plus years of my ministry, I have come to realize how extraordinarily blessed I have been to pastor a church that has unity. Second, if I were picking a passage to preach on on this night, I probably would not have picked this passage. Not only is it Sunday night, but it is Sunday night of public school spring break. Your presence here is a a blessing and an encouragement. I've heard the phrase for years, preaching to the choir. But this may come as close as I've been in a long time to really just doing that. The truth is that the preparation for this series started weeks ago, and so it is the Holy Spirit that brings us to the subject on this particular evening. I want you to begin reading with me in verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Paul writes, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says... I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. There's two things that I want you to see with me in our message tonight. First of all, we're going to look at the things that divide them. Paul begins in verse 10 to talk about the quarrels. He said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment, for it has been declared to me concerning you by my brethren, by those of close household, that there is contentions among you. To say that the church at Corinth was a church with problems, is a huge understatement. Here's a church in which a man is having an immoral relationship with his stepmother, and instead of reproving him, some were defending his freedom in Christ. Believers in the church are suing one another in the secular courts of law. Some are visiting temple prostitutes while others are advancing celibacy as the Christian ideal. 
There are disagreements about the role that women should play in the church, and the church cannot decide how to deal with those who want to speak in tongues in the services. But among the Corinthians' many sins and shortcomings, quarreling is the one that Paul chose to deal with first. The unity of the church is of such critical importance that Paul puts it first in his list of problems that he has to deal with at Corinth. But is unity really that important? Well, God seems to think so. Jesus outlined his ideal for his people in John chapter 17, which is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says in in verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name, those who you have given me, that they may be as one as we are one. Verse 21 says, And they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. John MacArthur states it this way. He says, tragically, though it is forbidden by God, is totally out of character with our redeemed natures, and it is completely in opposition to everything our Lord prayed for and intended for his church, fighting does occur among believers, among those who are called to be one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 12, he begins to deal with the cliques. Verse 12 identifies four cliques or groups or clubs, if you want, in the church at Corinth. They're all centered around one of four powerful men who had been a leader in the church at Corinth. First, there are those who say, we are of Paul. They are those who would say, hey, we are the founders of this church. We've been around here since the beginning. We are the most important based on longevity. The rest of you guys are just newcomers. They had a founders club. Then there are those who identified themselves by saying we're of Apollos. Apollos was a cultured and polished speaker. It's likely that he attracted the educated and cultured from among the Gentile believers. Third, there are those who identify themselves by saying we are Cephas or Peter. Most likely, this group is made up of Hebrew Christians, Christians of Jewish origin. These may have been people of deep spiritual roots who look around them and see these new people being saved, and they're a little bit worried about the spiritual depth of some of these recent converts. The fourth group, the super spiritual group, identified themselves by saying we are of Christ. 
But you know, I don't think that they are any better than the rest of these individuals. And although this group sounds pious, even spiritual on the surface, Paul included them in groups just like the rest. Their very tone conveys a sense of superiority, which of course is an offense to God. We live in a unique day when television and internet gives people access, easy access to any of the celebrity pastors of our day. There's a tendency to take the word of a favorite teacher and quote them as if they're infallible. For any number of superstars in the Christian community, depending on your perspective, Andy Stanley, Joel Osteen, Max Licato, T.J. Jakes, Charles Wendall, John MacArthur, just to name a few. And there's nothing wrong with having a favorite Bible teacher that you like to listen to. However, what is wrong is when you begin to claim that that teacher is right and all the other teachers are wrong. The teacher's job is to preach the gospel. The teacher should be pointing out people or pointing past himself and pointing people to Christ and to his word. I like the story of a Baptist preacher who really got wound up one Sunday morning and he began to talk about how Baptists were right. They had it all together. Most everybody else didn't. So he thought about it a little while. He said, I I want all of you that are Baptists to stand up. Everybody stood up except one little boy in the back. He said, what's your name? He says, my name's Ted. He said, Ted, you're not a Baptist? He said, no, sir, I'm a Methodist. He said, Ted, why are you a Methodist? He says, well, my grandparents were Methodists. He said, hmm, that's why you're a, a Methodist? He said, well, my parents are Methodists too. So the preacher got an idea in his head and he said, Son, what would you be if your parents were idiots? He said, Then I guess I'd be a Baptist. Sometimes that stuff will come back on you. But it seems the church at Corinth was abnormally divided. It's certainly a church that is divided against itself. But what may be even more tragic is that a large portion of the church may not have fit into any of those four groups or cliques. Now, nobody likes to think they're a part of a clique. It has a snobby sound. No one likes to think of themselves as a snob. Here's a bit of trivia for you, by the way. Do you know where the term snob comes from? When Oxford and Cambridge universities decided to admit commoners, As students back in the 1600s, each student was listed in the record by his name and his title. The commoners' names were listed with a Latin inscription that meant without nobility. The abbreviation was S-nob, snob. And although we have those exact, may not have those exact groups in our church, we still have our own little cliques, we have our own groups. 
We tend to congregate with people like ourselves with similar backgrounds and similar interests, and there's nothing innately wrong with that unless we become so close that we never reach out to include anyone else new in our group. Now, Paul seeks to answer this dispute by asking a series of rhetorical questions, rhetorical questions where the expected answer is no. First, he asks, is Christ divided? And the answer, of course, is no. Next, he asks, was Paul crucified for you? And again, of course, the answer is no. And finally, he asks, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, the answer is no. This, pause, this causes Paul to go on to reason, beginning in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now, by saying this, Paul is not minimizing the importance of baptism, but rather he is emphasizing the importance of the preaching of the gospel. If we look at the ministry of Jesus, we note that in his wisdom, he did not personally baptize his followers. Can you imagine the bragging rights of being able to say, well, I was baptized by Jesus. The rise of the party spirit within the church made Paul glad that he had not personally baptized many of the believers there. Charles Swindoll observes, apparently they had come to believe that the authenticity of their faith rested on not only on their baptism, but also upon their baptizer. Secondly, I want you to note the bond that unites them. And we're returning again to verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. First, Paul begins with now. Now is not the same as saying now moving on. In this case, now is an adversative. It means uh, it, that symbolically Paul is planting his feet and stiffening his back and preparing for what he is certain is going to be a confrontation. He introduces his appeal for unity by saying, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in doing this first of all, he appeals to them as brethren, brothers. As Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. We understand that no one has the opportunity to select who, ha who is in his or her family. Neither do we have the right to decide who the members are going to be in our church, nor who is going to sit at the end of our pew, or who is going to be in our Sunday school class. Paul next asserts that his authority is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This point is still valid for those who are preaching the Word of God today. The authority is not in the messenger. It is in the God 
of the message of the Word. Paul then sets the standard for what we are to be as a Christian fellowship, and he uses three different phrases to describe that unity that God desires. First, he says, agree with one another. He says, strictly, speak the same thing. Secondly, he says, let there be no divisions among you. And then he says, be perfectly united in mind and thought. And we may hear that read and say, well, that sounds good. But we might tend to shrug our shoulders and say, that's great in principle, but, you know, that's really not very practical, not very realistic. It seems like an impossibly high standard, but it really isn't. Parents who want to be successful in raising their children have to learn at a very early stage to agree that they're going to present a united front. When there is a disagreement about how to handle something, they will try to talk things out between themselves first, but even when they disagree, they will back each other up. Good parents know that there is a tendency of children to try to divide and conquer. Apologies to my daughter. When Nikki was little, if she came to me and asked for something that she had already asked her mother for, or vice versa, she knew what the rule was going to be. You are not only not going to get what you asked for, you are going to get a spanking. Children are great natural manipulators in exploiting their parents against each other. For the child's sake, parents must never let that happen. That doesn't mean that parents always agree on things. Just the contrary. Parents often approach issues of discipline and responsibility differently because each of them has a different background. Each of them have experienced different things in their family, which leads them to believe that a certain approach is better than others. However, to be a successful parent, we have to understand the need to put our differences aside in order to raise healthy children. And the same is true in the church. Paul is not suggesting that the unified church will never disagree about anything. Diversity is healthy. It keeps us honest. Diversity is not a sin. Having an opinion different than mine is not a sin. You're probably wrong, but it's not a sin. These are the jokes, folks. You better stay with me. They don't get any better, by the way. My grandson thinks that the Joker is the devil from Batman. I think he thinks about my bad jokes, and that's what leads him to think that's What Paul is challenging the Corinthians to do is to mend their relationships and attitudes toward one another and work toward developing a spirit of unity and cooperation. The great preacher, pastor, A.W. Tozier wrote, 
Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer each other than they could possibly be elsewise. Even if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God, they would not be able to find a closer fellowship. So how should we handle conflict situations? Since it's inevitable that there will be conflicts in the church, just like there are conflicts in any home, I want to look for just a moment at how to preserve the unity of, church, of the church at times like those. First of all, look at the things that we should not do. It's always wrong to do these things. Gossip and slander others. It's wrong to have secret meetings to lobby support for our position. It's wrong to draw unwarranted conclusions. For example, if someone doesn't agree with us, we need to be careful that we don't conclude that that person is obviously not right with God. That's the equivalent of saying that no one can go to heaven unless they believe as I believe. And then finally, it's wrong to engage in personal attacks. Personal attacks will only bring on more personal attacks. The damage from such actions create wounds that seem to never heal. So what do we do when conflict arises? The first thing that we ought to do when there is tension in a church is step back and take a breath. Nothing good comes from people who have lost control and who speak before they think. My sister used to have a plaque by her front door which said, Please engage your brain before you engage your mouth. I don't know if that was intended as a reminder to herself or to anyone who came knocking at her door. Here's some questions we can ask ourselves I think that would be a help. These are not in your notes. First of all, is this issue of eternal importance? Is what I'm upset about, is this conflict, is this something that is of eternal importance? Probably if you were able to look at, over the history of church splits, you would be astounded about how many of them did not occur over theological argumentation. But they happen because of personality conflicts or things that really just weren't that important. It might even be the color of the carpet. Secondly, I think it would be good for us to ask ourselves, have I brought this before God in prayer? Have I prayed about this? Third, is it possible that God is trying to teach me something in this? Is there something in this situation that God may be using in my life? Fourth, is it possible that the problem 
is me. I realize that's a real difficult one to deal with because it's hard for us to ever admit that the problem may be us. Is it an ego problem? Am I making my preferences the standard on this particular issue for everyone? Number five, is this an issue that I should simply overlook? And six, is this worth risking hurt feelings and a possible church split? Seven, and finally is, would Jesus spend time on this? Learning to show respect and love to each other, even when we disagree, I believe, is the key to Christian love and maturity. I'll use just one example that I think you as a church can be commended on. And I believe that is worship music. There is possibly more conflict about music in the present-day church than anything else. It seems that everybody has an opinion about music if they don't have an opinion about anything else. I think that you understand that the style of music used in worship is a secondary issue. It's a preferential problem. When one kind of music is considered worshipful and another is not, we're guilty of making our preferences the standard of truth. I think it is a sign of love in our church that you are able to recognize that some people love hymns and other people love contemporary. And I like the fact that we, as an expression of love, can sing both kinds of music. As I've already stated, we're a family. You may wonder, so how does that apply to handling disagreements? Well, just think about it for a moment. What happens when members of a family disagree? Do they stop being a family? No, of course they don't. We're related by blood, and nothing can ever change that. We disagree with members of our families, but because we love one another, we get over it, and we go on. As a church of Jesus, we are related by blood. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary. We will have our disagreements, but because we love each other, we need to get over them and go on. Because the work that he has left us to do is too important to waste our time and energy. It is obvious that the fabric of unity in the body of Christ can be easily torn or split with quarrels and cliques and pride. To keep this from happening or to mend the places that it has already been frayed, we must refocus on who we are serving. Leave behind our personal aspirations and recommit ourselves to love one another as a family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these who have been so faithful to come out tonight. I pray your blessings on them. And I pray in some way that the message may have been an encouragement to their hearts. I pray you bless them for their faithfulness and their love of you. Lord, we ask now that 
in this time of quietness that you'd speak through our hearts. If there's someone here, Lord, that needs to make a decision for you, whatever kind of decision that may be, we ask, Lord, that they'd make that decision tonight. Father, if there's someone here that needs to get something right, they need to spend some time with you at the altar, then, Lord, I pray that you use the time that they have here tonight to do that. Or if there's some kind of decision that they need to make known before the church, then, Lord, we pray that you'd help them tonight. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have complete reign in our service. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?